Hey everyone, welcome to episode 81 of the I Hate Green Beans podcast. This is an episode like you've never heard before and I'm excited to share it because my good friends over at Oasis Media sent me digital sample chapters of my book and you get to listen to them for free today. I'm one of those people who love an actual tangible book, but I also love when an author reads his or her memoir. With an audiobook, you can hear my sarcasm, dramatic pauses, and super fun accents that don't make me look at all like a weirdo. If you like what you hear, consider popping over to your favorite retailer and buying a copy for someone on your holiday gift-giving list at the time of this recording right now. The paperback and digital versions are available on Amazon for around $6, and the audiobook is a steal at $10. I hope you like what you hear. I also hope that you find it completely charming when I accidentally slide in and out of my adorable East Texas accent. Or as Mama says, what accent? Hey everyone, I'm Lindsay, and welcome to the I Hate Green Beans podcast. During each episode, I'll be discussing television, movies, music, and books with friends who love pop culture as much as I do. For those of you wondering, yes, we will be talking about the Bachelor franchise. And no, I do not want to try your grandmother's famous green bean casserole recipe. But thanks for offering. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Oasis Audio presents... Why I Hate Green Beans, and other confessions about relationships, reality TV, and how we see ourselves, by Lindsay Ray, read for you by the author. This book is dedicated for my mama, a lover of green beans. Simple disclaimer. Even though my mama suggested I call them out, I'd like to formally announce that some of the names of the people in this book have been changed to protect the ones who can't help but act like jack wagons. I also collected consent forms from friends I mentioned in exchange for withholding embarrassing stories from the manuscript. Let the record show that money was never exchanged, just favors. However, if you or someone you Snapchat happens to personally know, sort of know, or as friends with the CrossFit trainer who has slightly disappointed but mostly pleased with the Gilmore Girls revival and sounds exactly like one of the people described in my book, none of this is personal, and I'm sure they are all lovely people. Introduction I may hate green beans, but I love Oreos. I can't recall the first time I tried green beans, but I do know I have decided to hate them forever. Sure, they smell like feet, but the unappealing aroma has little to do with my aversion. I hate green beans because my mom made me eat them to lose weight. Once I hit puberty, I pretty much lived in the curvy category of life. I was the epitome of a boisterous lyric by Sir Mix-a-Lot and oddly unfazed by this fact. This puzzled my tall, thin mother. Why would anyone embrace a figure that wasn't exactly like Twiggy from the 60s? If I've learned anything over the years, it's this. The majority of women on the planet struggle with a variety of insecurities. Our skinny genes deceive us. Our grandmother's cold cream regimens torment us. Our Facebook feeds taunt us with the images of everyone else's picture-perfect lives. I wrote this book to encourage women everywhere to embrace the days when we aren't feeling like our best selves. It's for everyone who's tried the latest fad diet or online dating app and failed again. It's for those of us who scour the internet looking for ways to reduce stress only to roll our eyes when we discover step one is always the same. Cut out the caffeine, as if that's going to happen. We long for someone who's been there to walk close to us through life's difficulties. 
I know what it's like to laugh uncontrollably about insecurities. I also know what it's like to hurt deeply because of those same inhibitions. Much like our favorite bras, we women must lift each other up in a spirit of camaraderie. Whether about maneuvering the muffin top, navigating the sketchy waters of singleness, or walking the judgmental halls of the workplace, these stories are my way of sharing certain truths I've learned along the way and found incredibly helpful. Yoga pants are your friend, Jesus sees you, and green bean diets are never the answer. Part 1. Mirror, Mirror on the Wall Seasonal-themed Oreos are one of God's greatest gifts. Chapter 1. Why is Charlie Brown's teacher talking to me? I had the coolest language arts teacher in the eighth grade. Not only did Mrs. Smith make studying grammar, composition, and public speaking a fun activity, but she also took the time to invest in our lives. Her assignments were creative and entertaining, and they often involved her students really digging into their tender junior high brains, forcing us to take a good, strong look at who we currently were as well as who we wanted to be. One homework assignment involved designing a coat of arms to represent different phases of our lives. Ms. Smith presented us with six prompts, and each answer had to be expressed through a drawing. I recently found the folder with my coat of arms proudly displayed on the front. With great humiliation, I share my results of this assignment with you now. Number one, what was the most significant event in your life? I drew Mickey Mouse ears. The most significant event in my 14 years of life was that one time I went to Disney World when I was 11 years old. The seed was planted early, friends. I love Disney. Number two, draw your happiest moment in the past year. I drew a piece of paper with the words math test on it and a 100 written in red at the top. The happiest moment of eighth grade was making a perfect score on a pre-algebra test. Math was difficult for me in general, and it became a sensitive topic in my world. I strongly believe the hours I spent trying to learn the area of a triangular prism contributed to the love and dedication I have for the characters on the Big Bang Theory. Number three, indicate something at which you are good. I was good at holding purple pom-poms. I absolutely loved being on the cheerleading squad, but I'd like to point out that a flawless math test trumped making cheerleader as my happiest moment that year. Number four, what is something you're striving to become or be? Without a doubt, young Lindsay was striving to one day make the Hallsville Bobcat Bell drill team. No contest. Number five, if you had one year to live and were guaranteed success in whatever you attempted, what would you attempt? First of all, that's a little morbid. Don't you agree, Miss Smith? And second, I'm not making this up. I drew a scale with the arrow pointing to 90 pounds. I surrounded the scale with Dr. Pepper bottles and Hershey chocolate bars and wrote, I would eat fatty foods and not gain weight. Number six, if you died today, what three words would you most like to be said about you? Quote, I like her, end quote. In summary, My coat of arms epitomized a girl who loved Disney, experienced major anxiety about perfection, longed for a stage, was fiercely self-conscious about her weight, had a minor Dr. Pepper addiction, and desired for people to like her above all else. At times today, that coat of arms is a clone of what it was decades ago. I find myself battling the same insecurities I did in Miss Smith's class. Fortunately, I have a healthier perspective on life and work that affords me the opportunity to go to Disney World. I didn't always drag around these insecurities. When I was young, self-doubt never occurred to me. 
I was rarely unsure. I performed for my family, my friends, my dolls, the dog, the horses, whoever was driving the car, patrons in the grocery store, a brick wall, and the imaginary audience in my huge backyard. I spent days making up routines in the swimming pool, on the trampoline, in roller skates, or on the picnic table. It's what I did. It's who I was. Someone should have intervened in the summer of 1980 when I constantly sang the entire soundtracks from Annie, Grease, and The Sound of Music against the balcony in the living room as though I were a miniature Evita. I was obsessed with a little red-headed orphan, an Australian goody-two-shoes hopelessly devoted to a T-bird, and solving a problem like Maria. My outbursts of song and dance didn't seem to bother my parents or my sister. Mama and Jamie had been known to join in a time or two. Daddy would emphatically roll his eyes and turn up the volume on the TV. Performing is in my DNA. My extended family embraces the stage because life doesn't make sense without one. My grandmother designs dance costumes for a living. Most of my aunts and cousins have old megaphones in their closets that are frequently utilized. That's why they're in the closet, not the attic. Easy access. Given any one of the Ray women a baton, and she'll immediately launch into a routine from days of yore. Give that same baton to me, and I will use it to knock some object off a high shelf. It wasn't until puberty kicked in that I experienced my first bouts of insecurity. I became conscious of my peers watching me and deduced they probably had opinions about what they were seeing. Do they like my dance moves? Do they appreciate my ability to rock a mic like a vandal? Do they think I'm stupid? Are they laughing because of how my cheerleader uniform fits? When did we inaugurate a popular crowd and what does Two-Face mean? Weren't we all friends last week? Overnight, I morphed into an introvert who was often mistaken for an extrovert. If you put me on a track that encircles a football field, I could easily bust out a crowd-pleasing cheer and have a blast doing it. But you wouldn't expect me to make eye contact with you in the hallway because I wouldn't hate to disrupt your between-the-bell rhythm and accidentally make you late for class. The same is true today. If I walk into a party crowd, I find a nice spot near a vertical surface and remain stationary for the duration of the merriment, which, fingers crossed, is hopefully a come-and-go affair. I try to provide amusement to anyone who dares approach the weirdo wallflower. Never presume I freely mingle with the other guests like a civilized human being. I must be physically pulled by the arm toward the person you want to meet. That is, if I haven't already snuck out the door. Season two of New Girl introduced me to the life-altering genius that is the Irish goodbye. Thanks to Nick Miller's reclusive ways, I've since mastered the art of removing myself from a social situation with little to no farewell. Please understand that I will stealthily seek out the host of the gathering and genuinely thank him or her for including me on the invite list. My mother and Emily Post did not raise a monster, but the rest of you jokers will probably receive a nice text explaining my whereabouts or never hear from me at all. This mysterious character trait is part of my charm. If, however, I have a designated role in entertaining or educating that same crowd, I do the exact opposite. Put a microphone in my hand and I'm unstoppable. Offer me a headset like the one Britney Spears wears and I will regale you with the tales and include wild hand gestures and comedic facial expressions. Give me a podium and I'll abandon my notes mid-speech. I thrive on improvisation and have often been known to go rogue. What's that you say? Your MC bailed and you need someone to run the show on a moment's notice? Take me to your event and allow me to save the day. This gregarious character trait is part of my charm, too. I desperately want to be seen, and at certain times I'm equally terrified that will happen. I live with the constant nag of my introvert side begging me to blend in while my extrovert side craves to tag a conversation with the perfect sarcastic comment. 
It's a peculiar juxtaposition. The need to perform often wins out. It's in my blood and can't be stopped. I guarantee if you look through a microscope at the chromosomes that make up my genes, they will be positioned in a perfect pyramid wearing rhinestone headbands. My people are dancers, twirlers, gymnasts, and cheerleaders. That eighth grade coat of arms correctly foreshadowed my trying out and later securing a spot on the Hallsville Bobcat Bell drill team my sophomore year of high school. I couldn't wait to put on my uniform with the sparkling overlay full of purple and gold sequins, as well as my brand new white boots. I practiced kicking my leg high enough to touch the brim of my hat. I soaked up every eight count, every practice, every routine, and every second on the football field. This was where I was meant to be. What I didn't love was being measured and weighed on Mondays. Did I ever consider this tradition an incredibly antiquated practice? Nope. I accepted weigh day as the bane of my existence. That horrific chart in the director's office mocked me every single week. It said I was five feet two with small bones, therefore I should weigh 108 pounds. Interesting. I was a 15-year-old girl with muscular legs and a healthy derriere, and some doctor in a book published in 1974 thought I should weigh what I had back in the fifth grade. Why, this made perfect sense. The green beans first appeared when it was reported that the extra four pounds of insulation I was carrying around declined to budge. Mama believed with all her heart that green beans contained supernatural enzymes that promoted weight loss. She still does. She has personally experienced the phenomenon on more than one occasion, and she was perfectly willing to buy as many cans of this vegetable as needed to melt away the unwanted excess around my haunches. Mama loves a green bean. Ordinary people eat them sautéed, caramelized, bacon-wrapped, roasted, casseroled, or barbecued. Unfortunately, these recipes are chock-full of extra ingredients that counteract the weight-reducing molecular structure found in the bean itself. Mama prefers to eat them straight out of the can. Therefore, her daughters would eat them straight out of the can. I always complained that they smelled like a boy's locker room and tasted like sweaty socks. She popped them like Tic Tacs. I had to put my foot down the day beets established a regular rotation in my diet. I believe any food that stains a paper plate shouldn't be introduced into my digestive system. Mama obliged and simply doubled up on my green bean helping. She also suggested I pack some green beans and maybe a chicken breast or two for my lunch the next day. I started crying. Trying to be incognito about an air-based diet in the high school cafeteria is no easy task. While other girls ate their Wonder Bread sandwiches and nacho cheese Doritos and cinnamon-flavored Teddy Grahams, I attempted to look cool choking down my rice cake with a Slim Fast Chaser. There's nothing like the chalky aftertaste of a French vanilla bean shake to get you through an afternoon slump. After a year of dancing on the drill team line, my dream was to prove myself worthy of becoming a lieutenant. Officer tryouts were looming, and I began to get nervous. You see, for every pound over your ideal weight, you received a demerit. For every demerit incurred, points would be taken off your final score at tryouts. I hovered around 112 pounds and cursed those extra four pounds every time I stepped onto the scale. I needed a new strategy, something different. Enter the cabbage soup diet. Lord help me, if green beans are the smelly feet of all garden crops, then cabbage is the stinky armpit of the edible plant world. This diet was sweeping the nation and promised a 10-pound weight loss in only one week. As I lifted the lid to peek at the limp cabbage, tasteless celery, and pathetic tomatoes, 
bubbling away in a huge pot, I immediately deduced this particular food blend had to be a distant relative of the hot mush Miss Hannigan served the orphans. Annie was right. It is a hard knot life. My sister and I hated this soup so much, we poured the concoction into a blender so we could trick our brains into adopting the myth that it was a smoothie. A brown, gritty, disgusting smoothie. Mama drank it as though it were going out of style. Of course she did. When the week of tryouts arrived, I was still a great big chunk, I roll, at 111 pounds. Nothing was helping me lose the weight. No amount of Jane Fonda workouts could suppress my fear that I would be docked three points on my final tryout score. My dream of trading in my purple uniform for a white officer uniform was coming to a close. The night before the big day, Mama came to me holding a tiny peel in the palm of her hand. Swallow it, she said. This will help you. I didn't hesitate. I examined the object, chucked it into my mouth, and waited for her to explain the anticipated effects of the magic capsule I had just ingested. I feel as though I need a disclaimer here. I'm a child of the 80s, and I want to formally announce that the D.A.R.E. program worked on me. I said nope to dope. I preferred hugs over drugs. I wasn't one to hoover pills for the fun of it. It's different, however, when your prescription medication provider is your own mother. She had to take matters into her own hands, and Mama called for reinforcements, and that came in the form of a spare water pill from the secret stash of a good friend. Mama explained that the excess water I may be retaining would be evacuated over the next several hours. Who needs sleep when drill team tryouts are in the morning? Desperate times call for desperate measures. I went to the bathroom seven times in 12 hours that night. I woke up feeling refreshed, energized, relatively lighter, and ready to conquer the scale as well as my solo. Let's do this. I skipped breakfast because any rational person would know eating a healthy meal before a long day of trouts would utterly counteract the desired effects of all that excess water being eliminated from my system. Mama dropped me off at the school, and I immediately hightailed it to the scale and begged my director to weigh me. I was down to 107 pounds. Oh, happy day. Had cell phones existed back then, I would have taken a selfie and posted it on all social media platforms. Hashtag blessed. I ran off to find my best friend, Julie, in the hallway. She was super excited to hear I had miraculously lost the weight. We started warming up, and minutes later, we were escorted into the gym to perform the standardized team routine in front of the judges. The next round was the high-kick line. Then we waited for callbacks, and that took about four hours. Around lunchtime, I specifically recall Julie offering me some cheese nips from a plastic baggie. I resisted the temptation. One nip would make me bloated. I refused to chance it. Instead, I adjusted my glorious red, white, and blue stars and stripes overlay that perfectly symbolized my patriotic-themed solo set to the classic tune of Yankee Doodle Dandy. My prop was one of those white wooden guns the girls in the flag corps spin. Can you tell a bunch of family twirlers helped me choreograph this routine? Here's hoping I nail my toss turnaround and God bless America. I performed my solo and squealed with Julie as she finished hers. Then we marched in one by one for our interviews. One judge suggested, using the letters of your name, describe yourself with adjectives. My knee-jerk reaction was irritation. I have not one but two E's in my name. That's a hard letter. And this entire exercise suddenly became unfair. I took a beat, smiling, of course, to collect my thoughts and answered, lovely, intelligent, normal, creative, elegant, 
and effervescent. I thought I did a pretty good job. Poor Alexis is probably still in that gym right now trying to come up with an X word. Hmm. We quickly changed back into our basic leotards for another few rounds of dance and high kicks. We waited for our turn in the hot hallway and then burst through the doors into the cold gymnasium. Back and forth, round and round. The judges kept mixing us up in groups of five, trying to determine who would prevail at the end of the day as Bobcat Bell officers. We had just performed the routine known as the strut and were poised at attention as the judges wrote down their comments when my exciting day started to go south. I was standing still in drill team position. My head was high, my smile was big, and my vision was uncharacteristically blurry. I squinted my eyes and glanced at Julie. Why on earth would the judges need to see us in dim lighting? And what's that drum beat? Did the band come to prove we can dance to their music? Oh, wait. That's my heartbeat thumping in my ears. Suddenly, I realized the judges were talking, but I couldn't understand. Trust me when I say Charlie Brown's teacher is real, and she lives in the form of a woman from Jacksonville, Texas, who judges drill team competitions. I turned my ear to try and decipher the wah-wah-wah-wah language, but I came up short. Let me be clear. Not once did I ever deliberate what's going on with me. I took the darkness, the phantom bobcat band, and the Charlie Brown's teacher as standard operating procedure. Much like the N in my name, they were completely normal at the time. Julie was directly to my right. I got the sense that she was worried about me, but I didn't know why. As I looked at her, she was telling me with her eyes that I should be moving. I looked to my left, and the girl who had previously been right there seconds ago was halfway to the door. I started to follow feeling sluggish. I kept telling myself to smile. That's the last thing I remember before slamming into the wall and falling onto the gymnasium floor. Perhaps I should amend that intelligent adjective from my name. I woke up to Charlie Brown's teacher, another judge, and my director clapping their hands and slapping me on the face. Someone kept shouting, honey, are you okay? I looked up confused and immediately blurted, please don't make me do a callback. I can't do it and mumbled something about cheese nips and how I love being from the land of the free and the home of the brave. I'm quite sure Charlie Brown's teacher shares my stories at conventions and parties. I'm proud to inform you that I did make officer that eventful day. So did Julie. I should also share that those pesky five pounds came back almost immediately. My grandmother had to make me a new white uniform because the school didn't own any that fit my body. Much like Shakira's hips, my hourglass figure did not lie. Sometimes I want to take that lovely normal girl and hold her in my arms and tell her she is so much more than a number on a scale. I want her to embrace the curves and the muscles. I want her to freely eat those Halloween Oreos. I want her to know I see her struggle, and I want to tell her it's going to be okay. Hey y'all, it's Lindsay here to quickly tell you about my favorite website design firm, Digital Lemonade. Did you know that without the team over at Digital Lemonade, you wouldn't be able to read about Jordan's golden underwear or Leo's luscious locks? IHateGreenBees.com would be a figment of my imagination without Digital Lemonade's creativity. Lindsay and Alexis revamped my website last year and even helped me launch the podcast. If you need help creating a website, refreshing a website, or maintaining a website, this is the group for you. Simply Google Digital Lemonade to learn more or visit my website for a direct link. Now back to the show. Part two, she works hard for the money. I know what it means to work hard in a man's world. I like to think I add some sparkle to their lives. Chapter six, there I was, unable to breathe, 
on Peter Pan. Upon receiving my Bachelor of Arts degree in communications from Baylor University, I drove to Florida the very next week to intern at Walt Disney World. I was assigned to work attractions in Fantasyland and was officially bored by day three. I also developed a constant tension headache from my surroundings. Toddlers can't help but be drawn to Fantasyland's theatrical whimsy. On a hot summer's day in August, I can guarantee no less than 150 strollers are parked outside It's a Small World, as well as 150 babies, crawlers, new walkers, crying their eyes out because the family pushed them to skip their mid-morning nap. They don't show this part in the marketing videos. Because Fantasyland is incredibly loud, a system was developed to help one cast member catch the attention of another cast member amid the joyful, laughing families documenting day one memories in the park and the miserable, wailing families trying to hold it together on day seven. Calling out someone's name or whistling morphs into a cacophony of tears and giggles. We were taught to hiss at someone if we wanted them to turn around. And I'm here to tell you this trick works. A slow and steady snake-like hiss can cut through any sound a screaming toddler or ornery kid dressed as Buzz Lightyear can summon. To be clear, this typically doesn't work if you haven't trained yourself to listen for a hiss. Interestingly enough, it's quite easy to be trained. After two or three hisses, it becomes part of your subliminal consciousness. And it's not just a Disney World thing. I taught this trick to girls on a mission trip, and to this day, my friends Anne and Emily will whip their heads around when I hiss at them in church. They're pros. My time in Fantasyland was short-lived. It all started the day I was on wheelchair duty at Peter Pan. It can be argued that Peter Pan is the most popular ride in Fantasyland because it always has a long line. The ride consists of a bunch of boats that slide down a long alleyway. People jump into the boats, and then they're whisked away to Neverland. During the entire ride, they look down and watch as the plot of Peter Pan unfolds. The wheelchair entrance is on the far left, the beginning of the alleyway. This gives those who need extra help plenty of time to step onto the moving sidewalk, find their balance, and then slide into the boat. For efficient parents who have been maneuvering kids in and out of wheelchairs for years, this doesn't bother them in the slightest. And those who haven't negotiated wheelchairs still have time to figure it out before the sidewalk turns into the regular boarding. That being said, one person always freaks out. When you work the wheelchair line, you have to walk backward on the moving sidewalk waiting for guests to arrive. On this particular afternoon, I greet a family of eight accompanying a buxom grandmother in a wheelchair. I ask if they have ridden Peter Pan before and all answer in an enthusiastic chorus of yes. From what I can gather, there are several generations who undoubtedly have visited the park on multiple occasions. At this point, it's my duty to explain exactly what will happen with the adult in the wheelchair after I confirm she can walk. They made this point clear in training, and since I'm a severe rule follower, I take my job seriously. I follow the instructions to a T. Me. Okay, this is going to be super simple. You're going to stand up, get your balance, and then take two steps toward me onto the moving platform. I'll hold both of your hands. You stand there and take a moment. Then I'll help you into the boat. Easy peasy. Typical rider. Will the boat leave me on the sidewalk? Me. Excellent question. The answer is no. The boats move at the same speed as the sidewalk. Once you step onto the moving sidewalk, wherever you are, there's a boat right there for you. It will not leave you. 
By this time, the little ones are eager to get on the ride. One of the adults volunteers to go first. She shoves the kids past me, hops onto the boat. A few tweens are next, and I'm left with Grandma's brawny son. He helps her stand up, and she grabs my hands. I can tell she's scared. I explain the instructions again, fearful that Grandma may make me look bad in front of my bosses. Me. All you have to do is take two steps toward me, I say as I'm still walking backward on the sidewalk. One, two, and then stop. Got it? Ready? Grandma, yes. The son looks unconvinced. Me. On three. One, two. Grandma, no, I'm not ready. The tweens yell for Grandma to hurry up and get on the stupid ride already because the line for Space Mountain is probably hours long by now. I try again. Me. On three. One, two. Grandma, don't pull me. I explained to Grandma that I would never pull her onto a moving sidewalk. She was going to step on it herself. Not only is forcing Grandma to take a step a dangerous solution, but I'm pretty sure I would be fired if someone saw me do that. Or I'd be banished to work the poncho stand by Splash Mountain, the horror. The son becomes so irritated that he scoots by me and Grandma, figuring he can be more helpful if he's in the boat. Now that her son is no longer behind her, Grandma feels extra pressure to make this happen. Me, on three. One, two, three. As you may recall from my never-wavering instructions, this is the moment when Grandma is supposed to walk toward me, left foot, right foot, then stand there. I stop walking backward because I'm supposed to let the momentum of the moving sidewalk guide her forward. We are still holding hands, yet Grandma does not take the steps. Therefore, I inadvertently pull her onto the moving platform. She lands on me. This squishy, lovely Grandma lands on me. I'm now sandwiched between Grandma and the moving sidewalk, making my way down to the general public section. I try not to waste time being frustrated at her son for chilling in the Peter Pan boat without a care in the world. I also pray that management isn't around to see me fail miserably in this absurd moment. Trying to locate the emergency stop button clipped on my hip is a useless endeavor. It's buried, and filling up Grandma to find it is not an option. I decide to hiss with the hope that my general public, how many, yellow boat, how many, green boat, counterpart, will see the error of my ways and push her own emergency stop button. There's just one problem. When I try to hiss at the girl, Grandma's weight keeps me from properly performing my nifty trick. She's constricting my airway. All that comes out is a sputtering sound that doesn't do anything but throw Grandma into a panic. She speculates that she's smothering me. That's when she starts apologizing profusely. Seeing that she's three inches from my face, I give her a weak smile. After a solid 30 seconds of pseudo-hissing, we finally slide up to the regular entrance. My how many co-worker still has not noticed me. I shouldn't be mad. I would never expect her to come gliding along beside my ankles. Why should she? A man waiting in the queue says something along lines of, does she need help? Before the girl punches her own button. Three chivalrous Peter Pan enthusiasts lift Grandma off me. She thanks everyone involved in the rescue, squeezes my cheek, and then selects a boat from her many unmoving choices. Those standing in line applaud me. I bow and then hide in the Pirates of the Caribbean break room. My trip down the Peter Pan conveyor belt gave me the courage I needed to campaign for a transfer into Adventureland. There was no way things could get worse, right? 
My friend Jill was a world-class Jungle Cruise skipper, and we double-teamed our efforts to convince the higher-ups that my darling personality was currently wasted on saying to big groups of people, how many yellow boat, how many green boat? Jill greased the proper wheels, and after a few weeks, I talked my way into Adventureland. My monochromatic skipper costume made me look like a beige blob. I tried not to care. I was more nervous about memorizing the required long spiel. It was also rumored that Imagineers secretly rode the Jungle Cruise to make sure skippers weren't going off script. If you didn't follow the spiel exactly as it had been written, you could be fired on the spot. I had heartburn for the first four weeks of work, but I soon settled into a comfortable rhythm once my always-follow-the-rules approach kicked into gear. It wouldn't be the last time I leaned on my perfectionist ways to secure a dream. Hey, thank y'all so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. This book could not have been written without those of you who have followed me from the beginning. It's been a wild ride, and I have loved every minute of it. Remember, the paperback, digital, and audio versions of Why I Hate Green Beans are available for you wherever books are sold. Until we're together again, love you, mean it, Texas forever.